The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. As soon as Jesus and the disciples left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he gathered many who were sick with various diseases. He cured them and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed, and Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Christ. How great is your God? Great enough for you? Great enough for these times? It's a question both asked and answered in both our first readings and psalm for today. Isaiah raises the question for the children of Israel, exiled to a foreign land and now in captivity to a foreign people who worship foreign gods and who consider their military greatness, their victory over the children of Israel to be evidence that their gods are obviously greater than the Lord God of Israel. And given the fact that, among other things, the Babylonians had looted and destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem, some of the Jews wondered if maybe if maybe they were right about that. Wondered if maybe the God of Abraham and Sarah and every generation since wasn't great enough for them in these unprecedented times. To them, the prophet says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? Have you for crying out loud forgotten? Just how great is the greatness of our God? How vast is the vastness of our God? How very God is the Godness of our God? Look up, Isaiah says. Look at the vastness of stars in the night sky. And then let me tell you something. Our God is so God, Isaiah says, that the vastness of the heavens are the mere tent that God lives in. And that when God looks down at us from God's tent, when he sees us, including the greatest among us who live not in tents, but in castles with thrones and in white houses with oval offices, when God looks at us, including the so-called greatest among us, Isaiah says, God sees all of us us's as no more than a swarm of grasshoppers compared to God. Which is a pretty dramatic image all by itself, but it's made immeasurably, 
and unlimitedly more dramatic when you factor in today's science realization that compared to the vastness of the universe, well, grasshoppers? Ha! Not even. For our whole planet is a mere, isn't even a grasshopper. Our whole planet is a mere speck of dust in the vastness of it all, and thus even more so compared to the vastness of the creator of it all. For, both Isaiah and the psalmist say, there is no limit to God's wisdom. For God is a God who even numbers the stars, all of them, and then calls out to each one of them by name, which is another image made unfathomably more dramatic when you factor in today's science and its realization that even with all of the scientific tools at our disposal, we only know and have named the tiniest percentage of all the stars in the heavens, given the fact that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has several hundred billion stars, and there are billions of other galaxies in the universe with as many or more stars. Absolutely no one knows how many stars there are, our scientists say. Excuse me, pardon me, the psalmist and Isaiah say, God knows. By the way, they both add, you know all those people in the world who think they're so great, and they want to be treated like stars? or gods, compared to the godness of God, oh my goodness, it is to laugh. For in Isaiah's words, it is God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. And the psalmist adds, God is not impressed by the might of a horse and has no pleasure in the speed of a runner. God is not impressed by the might of the horse, as in don't be thinking the military is your salvation. And God has no pleasure in the speed of a runner, as in it may be Super Bowl Sunday, but don't be treating jocks like gods either. For the goat, the greatest of all time, is not Tom Brady. The greatest of all time, and all space, and all of everything, is our God. Are you now on board with, according to Isaiah and the psalmist anyway, how great is your God? Actually, no, no, you're not, not quite yet, because Isaiah and the psalmist aren't done yet. You think God's greatness is only as great as knowing the numbers and names of every single star in the heavens, they say? You think God's greatness is only as great as the fact that you can take the greatness of the likes of Nebuchadnezzar and Julius Caesar and Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes and LeBron James and you take your pick, who else, and then all of that greatness added all together and it still only adds up to a fraction of a dust mite compared to God. Let me tell you about greatness that's even greater than that, they both say, because you want to know how great the greatness of our God truly is? And then they say this, Isaiah 40, 29, God gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Psalm 147, 3 and 6, the Lord heals the brokenhearted 
and binds up their wounds. The Lord lifts up the lowly. How great is the greatness of our God? Isaiah and the psalmist say, oh my, they answer. God is great not only with greatness so great that the world's self-proclaimed great are literally next to nothing in comparison. God, Isaiah and the psalmist say, is great with greatness that is even greater than that. For ponder the greatness of this. God not only knows the names and numbers of the stars, too many to name a number, but God too knows the names and numbers and needs. On this tiny dust speck of a planet, whom the world's great are by and large greatly uninterested in naming or caring about, preferring rather to overlook or stereotype or marginalize or use or abuse or a combination of the above. God, Isaiah and the psalmist say, and the scriptures say over and over again, our God, your God, great beyond great and beyond imagination in terms of what we have with our tiny little brains, the ability to imagine, God is equally great with the greatness of unimaginable compassion. Compassion, especially for those whose needs are greatest. The greatness and, and, of, and compassion, of course, we as Christians claim, was tented in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, who greatly, compassionately did all that he did all the way to a cross for those of us whose greatest need was and remains the healing that only forgiveness can heal us with. But who, too, on the way from Bethlehem to Galilee to Jerusalem, all the way finally to a cross, reached with compassion to heal and to help all he could, whose needs were whatever they were in the world, when he found them and where he met them. If they were hungry, he fed them. If they were in bondage, he freed them. If they were hated, he loved them. If they were sick, he healed them. If they were empty, he filled them. And in three cases mentioned in the Gospels, if they were dead, he raised them. Which takes us to our gospel text for today, where, we, where the one he met and compassionately healed was Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who, writes Mark, was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. A very interesting note from the Greek text. He lifted her up could also be translated, he raised her up. For in fact, it is the identical, exact, same root Greek word, agairo, that Mark will use in the last chapter of his, novel, of his gospel when the angel says to the women outside of Easter's tomb, why are you looking for Jesus of Nazareth here? He has been agairoed, raised up. Hold those two uses of the same exact words side by side, and it tells us that in Mark's understanding of it all anyway, resurrection is not only limited to being raised up to eternal life at the end of our days and years on earth, resurrection also includes being raised up to new life as we live our days and our years according to the desires of God on this earth. God's desire being what? Mark 1.31, he lifted her up, raised her up, resurrected her, a guy rode her, and she then began to serve them. 
which is an observation we grossly misunderstand. If we read this simply as an outdated and paternalistic story of a she, a woman, being raised up to serve the needs of them, the men, far better, far truer, is to read in this story the ever-contemporary without-end story of the people of God, Christ's church, being raised up by his love to serve the needs of the world. And do so in some cases in ways we consider menial. It's the Greek again. The word for serving them, stiakone. Same word that gives us the English word deacon, as in deacon Pam, as in one rostered in the ELCA as a minister not of word and sacrament, but a minister of word and service. It's the same word Mark used earlier when the angels came to Jesus after he was temptation by Satan in the wilderness and they served him, they waited on him is how the NRSV translates in that case. And it's the same word that Mark will use later in this gospel when the one who was awesome with awesomeness of the greatness of God tented not in the heavens but in the flesh would say to his followers, whoever wishes to be great among you must be a servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to do so all the way to a cross. God's desire for God's people on earth is not for us just to sit and wait for the day we are resurrected to eternal life. God's desire for God's people on God's earth is for us to be resurrected every day as we rise up from the waters of our baptism to be great with holy greatness, as we don't seek to climb up with trumped-up greatness over or at the expense of others, but rather stoop to be truly great with holy greatness by serving others and being compassionate for others, which in our gospel for today makes Peter's mother-in-law not an outdated model of female subservience, but rather a contemporary model of the church in faithful obedience when it says that she raised up, resurrected from her illness, got up and served them. And in doing so, she was great with the greatness of Jesus who came to serve. How great is your God, not just great with the unfathomable greatness of the creator of it all, and not just great, too, with the greatness of a heart of compassion for all, for you, but great, too, with the greatness of the Son, who, for the sake of the needs of all, humbled himself, lived among us as a servant, finally to take up that cross to die for the love of you and all. Sisters and brothers, resurrected daily from sin and death, how great with holy greatness, which is to say with servant greatness, which of course is finally to say with great love. How great with holy greatness is our great God today calling you to be, calling us to be, because there are great needs in God's world. But God, it turns out, has a plan for that. Which is why God not only gave the world and then raised up for the world a servant savior, but also gave the world and daily seeks to raise up anew in the world a servant church. May it be so. Amen.